In the past month, I've attended three funerals for very close friends of mine, two of whom their father died and one was uh, her mother. And all of them had marriages that lasted like 55 years. And all of the funerals I noted, everybody talked about how family was most important to these people, but that at the end of the day, whatever their careers were and successes and hobbies, it was about their love for their spouse and their family. And it is sad to me that I will not get that. You know, I will not get that with my husband. I will not get 55 years and, you know, an adoring man at my bedside or at his bedside. And I'm letting go of that. I'm learning to accept it. Hi, I'm Helen Russell and welcome to How To Be Sad, the podcast about how embracing our sadness and other difficult emotions could be the key to a happier life. Now, I'm recording this episode from inside a cupboard in rural Denmark, but my guest is in New York City, so if you hear a lot of sirens in the background, don't be alarmed. And if you hear errant owls in the background my end, ditto. I hope you'll still enjoy the episode and I'd love to hear what you think. How To Be Sad, the book, is out now in paperback wherever you get yours, so if you like what you hear, there's lots more where that came from. Now, on with the show. My guest today met her husband when she was just 19. Three kids and 27 years later, he fell in love with someone else. For several months after this, she did little aside from scrape herself up off the floor and care for her kids through their misery and her own. She says of this time, I felt like I was either going to die or learn how to live again. Laura chose life, as well as learning how to sit with pain as a lifelong optimist. Laura Friedman-Williams is my guest today on How To Be Sad, the author of Available, a memoir of sex and dating after a marriage ends. Laura, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on today, Helen. So I'd love to start at the beginning. You talk about life before the discovery that your husband was in a relationship, about being busy and not having the time to connect and not necessarily being happy, but seeing this as par for the course in in a long-term relationship. I wonder what was your relationship with sadness at that point? Hmm. Well, I think I, I just thought I could outrun it. I think that I really felt like sadness, I didn't have time for it. And I would not be stopped by it. So I had had a lot of sadness in my life, having nothing to do with my husband. My father died when I was five. My mom remarried a year later. And it was very complicated. I had a very complicated family structure growing up because of it. And I had a lot of sadness from it. And it was completely never dealt with. And there were a couple of times in my life where I had, I really ran like right into a brick wall. And I was so perplexed by this idea of that I could be sad that I couldn't outrun pain. I didn't even know what it looked like. I didn't understand what was happening to me when I when I hit those walls. So I would say I, I was very efficient, you know, with my time and, and with my energy. Even if I felt sad about something, I would give myself a time limit. Like you have until, you know, tomorrow at midnight to wallow in this or to complain or be sad, and then you're done. You've got to move on and you have to overcome it. And that's how I addressed sadness. It was something to overcome. Okay, and then at this point, were you able to do that? Was this something you couldn't outrun? No, no. This, <laughs> just no. I mean, this was so <laughs> life-changing. It was so earth-shattering for me that there was no choice. I was stopped by the pain. I was stopped by the sadness. There was no time limit that I could give myself to say in a week, in a month, in a year. I saw no end to how incredibly sad I was. I think it was the first time in my life I felt true grief. 
I'm sure that I did as a child when my father died, but that's very different to be five years old and then to be, you know, 47 and, and to be a parent yourself of three children who are grieving. That was a completely new experience for me because I had no choice but to really stare it down. And I was really struck reading your book. There's also you, other people's reactions to contend with, which just seems so unfair when you're going through something like this. But uh, you, you write very sort of generously, I think, the feeling that your mother perhaps preferred your ex-husband to you and you were thinking about how, how this was going to change and the impact on your extended family as well. Yeah, it felt really, that part felt really sad. It was hard to, it, it's hard to envision when you're in something in the moment, how it's going to play out. In my case with his family, his parents had both died. He was an only child. And I was more, I was really closer to his cousins and distant relatives than he was. So those relationships remained intact for me. My family, who had been so loving toward him, you know, again, they'd known him since he was 20 years old and they adored him. He was all but dead to them when when they found out about the affair. They really, the idea that he had hurt me as deeply as he did and the idea that he didn't cherish the family the way that my family cherishes family uh, was was really staggering to them, especially to my parents, who my father actually had a harder time than, than my mother did, which was surprising to me. They just could never see him the same way again. And I would say to them sometimes, like as years went on, I would say, you know, he's going to come to a holiday or you're going to see him at one of the kids' performances and you, you have to be nice. And they always said, we'll always do the right thing for the kids' sake, but it's only for the kids and that's it. Oh, it's hard, isn't it? And you talk about um, the, the reactions of friends as well. You are surprised when I think a friend who's undergoing cancer says that she wouldn't want to be in your shoes, that it's that somebody would prefer yeah, to fight a life-threatening illness than to have an unfaithful husband. And I guess that's a real underlining of, okay, yeah, this is, this is bad. Yes. I think that was one of the first moments where I thought, oh, like, this is really terrible. What has happened to me is not palatable. I can't just put this in a box and put it away. This is, this is going to be um, something that I'm going to have to wade through. And people are going to look at me like I'm a, I just emerged from a train wreck. I'd never been in that position before. Personally, I felt that I was always more of a leader or a role model. I was always like the president of the PTA and the class mom. And I was always somebody that other people came to for help or resources. And so to be in this position, I felt that people pitied me and I was embarrassed. I was ashamed and I couldn't talk. I, you know, if I tried to talk to people, I would just cry. It was like people thought that I was living a lie and I wasn't. I was living a very real relationship and a, and a very close family relationship, but something had gone wrong and I hadn't seen it. And so I felt like I'd been totally demoted. My friends never made me feel that way. I don't even think my community made me feel that way. It was me. I demoted myself. Like, who am I to give you advice? Who am I to give you resources? Who am I to talk about relationships when I am in this position? So I, I understood for my friends, I think it was such a tricky position because I thought we might get back together. So I was very careful also, like, please, you know, don't say anything terrible about him and don't be too angry because we might be all sitting at dinner again a year from now. It was a lot to navigate, you know, sort of pouring my heart out to them and wanting them to feel my anger, but also wanting them to support both of us. It's so nuanced, isn't it? And, the, and you, you mentioned shame 
just seems so unfair that you end up feeling those things when you're not the person who has made this choice or who has, has done these things. I was really interested in when you confided in friends, they would inevitably ask how you found out that however compassionate they are and knowing that it will bring pain for you to remember this, they sort of had to know. I don't think as a friend on the other side, it would have occurred to me that it would have been quite so painful to ask how it had happened. It's something I'll be mindful of in the future, but were there there other helpful things that people said? Helpful things. I think the helpful things that people said were, I am here for you. And I remember one of my friends, she said, tell me how you want me to be. Do you want me to um, convince you to leave? Because I'll I'll do it. I'll, I'll put together 20 reasons by tonight. Do you want me to convince you to stay? Tell me. And I'll put together a reason, you know, all the reasons why you should do it. Just tell me what you want. And I, I had no idea what I wanted, but I appreciated that she was just going to ride it out with me. Mostly what helped me was, were the friends who just sat with me and held my hand and let me cry and said, like, we love you no matter what. And we love your kids. And we, we're going to see you through this. I think just asking questions wasn't helpful. The, the, the question of how I came upon it was very unhelpful, as was the question when people used to ask me what I thought the chances were that we would stay together. And these were mm. very like kind and compassionate friends. These are people that are still my friends who I, I cherish and who really like held me through this process but I don't want to have to think about that when I'm in the middle of it. You know, yeah. I don't want to have to give odds. It's my life. This is, you know, this is happening to me. It's not like I'm watching a story on TV. And when you say about deciding, how do you reach that point? Or how did you reach the point of being able to decide what you were going to do next? That is really tricky because in hindsight, versus in the moment, it has had a very different outcome, I guess, in some ways. Once I started dating and, um, you know, dating other men and sort of getting my confidence back and my excitement about dating, I really couldn't imagine going back to him. He was just, he was the emblem of pain and um, betrayal to me. And here I am like sleeping with everybody I can and having the best time. Why would I give that up to go back to something that was just causing me pain? I couldn't even look at him. I couldn't look him in the eye for, you know, months and months and months. So that was part of what I informed my, what informed my decision. The other thing for me was my kids. They were really struggling with a lack of clarity and I got it. You know, I understood that for them, if it was painful for me, I understood it was just as painful for them. Is dad going to come home? Are we going to all be together again? What are our lives going to look like going forward? And they needed to know. So everybody kept saying to me, you don't have to decide. You can take your time. You know, you can figure this out. And I thought, I can't. I've got three children breathing down my neck. I owe it to them to make a decision that he's either coming home or that we're going to start the process of divorce. And it was interesting because recently my eldest daughter, who's now 22, she said to me, do you think you should have given it more time? And I said, well, yeah, I wish I had given it more time. I wish I'd thought it out a little bit more. But I felt so much pressure from you guys to make a decision. It was fair. And she said, pressure? I was so surprised when you made such a quick decision. And I said, you were the one who kept saying to me, mom, you have to decide. And she goes, I totally forgot about that. You're right. I did. <laughs> so oh my it was amazing because in her <laughs> mind, I just was like, okay, that's it. I'm done. And she'd forgotten that she had been really the one sort of like, you know, pushing the reins forward on that. 
And I respected it. I'm not saying it in a bad way that my kids were pressuring me in a bad way. It was, was everything for them. They needed to know what was going to happen. And I felt very much that that was my responsibility to, to just go one way or the other for their sake. Yeah, we sort of need a story, don't we, for our lives, a script. And I guess if what you had in mind had been torn up, even if your daughter is perhaps, you know, we have different memories of how things are when we look back, you kind of need to know your story, don't you? I think you do. And I've struggled with this in in my own life so much, um, as I mentioned, because my father died so young and then my mother remarried and um, my new father adopted me. My history sort of changed, you know, the history of my lineage in some ways. And I knew how painful that was and how confusing it was. And I just, the idea that I couldn't do better for my own children was so devastating to me. And I understood that it wasn't my choice or my doing, but I couldn't, in my mind, you know, your role as a mother is to provide and to protect, provide and protect. And I, I couldn't protect them from this thing, this this tumult in their, in their childhoods, this break in their childhoods. And so... I felt very guilty, and sometimes I still do, even though, you know, everybody is okay now. But yes, I, I didn't want them to have this story. I wanted them to have a story of a cohesive family. Do you think you're quite hard on yourself there? Yes. Because <laughs> yeah. I, I feel as though I've spoken to many. I, I similarly did not have the kind of cookie-cutter parents and upbringing, and there is this this feeling. I, I feel, feel the same way. I, I think you wrote, I want to break my family's curse. But I've spoken to people whose parents have had the seemingly perfect marriage, who have come from stable homes, and there, there's then a the guilt and shame about feeling mm. you're letting the side down if you're the one breaking the cycle. Mm-hmm. So maybe none of us can win. There. Right. That's a very <laughs> fair point. That's very true. And and actually recently, you know, my, my daughter, as I mentioned, this one conversation I had with her, she's very um, sensitive and deep. And we talk a lot about everything, you know, that's happening. And just recently, I was very sad after I signed the divorce papers. And she said, do you regret it? And I said, do you regret, you know, not staying? And I said, I, I don't, but feel terrible that I couldn't stop this from happening. I couldn't stop, you know, this from being what our family looked like. And she said, but it wasn't you. And I said, right, but it doesn't matter. I'm your mother. I should have had the power to do that. And she said, I I can't imagine how you could have. And none of us think that. And it was really interesting for me to hear that and very reassuring because I think I do always carry the weight of, I should be able to fix everything, right? Like super mom. We should be able to lift cars off of people, you know, if we have to, like we're the ultimate mama bears. And I believe that. And so for me to have to accept that I was actually just human being, well, I'm still working on that, I guess. I think you explore very beautifully the whole idea of motherhood. At one point, you talk about maybe feeling as though you perhaps have resilience in your DNA because your mother experienced growing up without a father and then you lost your father. But that, again, that seems like an awful lot of pressure to be putting on yourself. Do you do you genuinely feel that now? No, I don't think I do. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's been too much, you know, that's happened. So, Uh, My husband and I separated. It's been four years, um, exactly four years this month. A lot has happened in my life since then, you know, selling the apartment that we own together. My father died last year. You know, there's... Sorry. Thank you. Um, There's just been a lot of upheaval. My my second child left for college, so I'm down to just the one child at home now. And I didn't even really have time to grieve his leaving amidst, you know, we were moving out of our apartment and my father just died. So... It's been a lot of change. And I think 
I confused resilience with stoicism. This is something that I became very aware of. After my husband left, my mom gave me a book and it was called like Life Lessons from the Stoics or something like that. And I started flipping through and she said, this book got me through so many challenging periods. And I, I really have given this to everybody who's going through a hard time. And I really think you're going to get a lot out of it. And I started flipping through it and I thought, this is exactly the problem. I don't want to be stoic. I don't want to just, you know, bear my way through this. I want to, I have to feel this. I have no choice. I have to slog through this. And being stoic is not at all what I'm going for now. And so I I returned the book to her. And... (laughs) That's a healthy relationship. Um, yeah. No, we, we, we are, we have a, I mean, I don't know if it's healthy. It's pretty healthy. It has some big bumps, but I did give it back to her. And I said to her, this is not what I'm going for. So I, I do think my mom had a lot of that, you know, we just didn't talk about things. We didn't talk mm. about my dad dying. We didn't talk about my being adopted by another man. There were a million things we didn't talk about. We didn't talk about her father leaving her. We didn't talk about her siblings who she'd never met, who lived, you know, a thousand miles away, whose names she didn't even know. So there, we just, that was the way that we dealt with things. I saw that, I believed that that was resilience. That was just being strong. That was rising above your circumstances. And I don't really see it that way anymore. I, I think that if you don't feel the pain, you're, it's going to catch up to you eventually, no matter what. I don't know when, you know, but it, it could, it will happen. And we have to learn how to face it. That's resilience is really like letting yourself fall down and be vulnerable and, you know, think that you're not going to rise up again and eventually rise up. It's not just about like pretending it's not happening. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Yes. I think um, I also had a sort of flirtation with the Stoics and then actually realized that detachment and feeling less are the very last things I need to do. We can all be robotic, but that doesn't really help anything long term. But, and I wonder, it's so interesting, the idea of motherhood and and your ideas of being a good enough mother and what that means. And you talked about being able to you know, lift a house, but you write really beautifully about how unleashing a different side of you and then being unwilling to bottle that up again and realising that what you need to be a complete person includes but is not limited to being a good mother. I wonder if you could talk to us a little about that. Motherhood is so strange because it, no matter what, once you enter it, whether you enter it as I did with, you know, great desire and um, a desire for years and years to be a mother before it actually happened, or, you know, you enter it later in life, this tiny little person is going to completely upend your life and continue to do so forever. And so I think that for me, in the way that my mother was, motherhood really meant like giving yourself over completely. And it's interesting because my mom always worked actually and went back to get her PhD when I was in high school. So she was very successful and very driven. But I knew that her her real loyalty always lay to her children. I knew that we always would come first. And I, I didn't know how to separate myself. I just wanted to give myself to my children. I remember when I, when I had my first child, she was in daycare and I worked three days a week and I would always count every week. I calculate the number of hours that I'd spent away from her versus the number of hours I was with her to um, I still do that. Do yes. you? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, and it's funny because now here I am, my youngest child is 11 and she's, we divide custody. I have her about 60% of the time. And so I'm still doing that. I'm still counting the hours or the days that she's with her father and not with me because it's very hard for me to 
you know, feel that you're good enough if you're not always there. But at the same time, I feel so much more present for my children now because I do have time for myself. I have other things that are going on. And I think that when my, my talk, when I talk to them each individually, our conversations are so much richer now because it doesn't all revolve around them. It's also about me. Like they, they've learned to say, how are you doing, mom? How is your day? You know, and to be interested in, in the things that I'm doing or people I'm meeting um, or what I'm writing, you know, they're interested in, in what's happening for me now aside from them or my relationships, dating, anything like that. They really want to know about it. They, they don't want to be like upfront, you know, witnessing it, but they want to know what my life is like when I'm not with them. And I want them to know that I'm a complete person, whether or not I am with them, that I will always, I'm always going to hold them first and foremost in my mind, but that I also have a full life, even when, when I'm on my own. You have raised good children then. Yeah. That's great that they are asking how you're doing. And yeah, I have, admirable. I have to say <laughs> that my children are remarkable. Like they're really compassionate, interesting people and very unique. Not one of them is like the other as, and, um, and, but they do, they think about me all the time. And I think part of it is because there was a period after, um, my husband and I split up when I was dating a lot and my older daughter was furious at me. She just thought I was, I was too much a human being aside from being a mom. Like she didn't like all of us, you know, the transition in other words, was difficult for them. So I'm making it sound now like in hindsight, it was very bumpy for them. Like knowing that I was dating, knowing that I was writing about it, knowing that I was having sex and and talking about it so openly was very uncomfortable for them. And at one point my older daughter said, you know, you're just too human now. (laughs) (laughs) She wanted me to go back, you know, to being her mom 99% of the time and then just being like a human on the side. And she did not, it was not easy for her to relinquish me to having a private life. So I I do think my kids are amazing, but I also think that they have really been forced to grow with me. You know, they saw me on my knees for months and months and months, and they felt it too. And I was with them through that, you know, and and I think they want me to be happy. You know, they, they want me, they don't want to lose me but they also want me to be happy. They don't want to have to worry about me. My older daughter told me recently, you know, mom, I'm always going to worry about you. I'm always going to worry about your happiness. So it's good for her to know that, you know, I'm doing okay and that I'm thriving because then she can rest easy, that she doesn't have to take care of me. And how do you navigate that? How did you navigate it from the position of, of I guess, quite understandable and quite usual resistance from your children, your youngest, especially, I guess, towards the idea of you being a woman as well as a mother. How did you um, turn that around? Or is it just time? I think it's just time and practice and getting used to something. They were horrified. When I first started dating, they were just like, my son was the only one who was okay with it. The girls were both just absolutely disgusted, (laughs) which is funny. I mean, he was like, okay, like go live your life and um, you do you. I don't need to be involved in it, but I, I definitely want you to, you know, have a life like I have. But my girls weren't like that. They were like, you have us. Why do you need more than that? And I even said to my older one, so like when you go out on a Saturday night and I'm home by myself, you just want to go out and I should be sitting here waiting for you when you get back late at night. And she said, yes, that's exactly what I want. (laughs) And she did. You know, she was scared. She was scared of losing me. I think part of what happened was I'm very close with my brother. He's very wise. And he was at my house one day and my daughter was 
furious because she found out that I was dating. This was like the the very first time that she found out that I had started dating. And she was so betrayed and so hurt. And my brother, and I was furious. Like, how dare you not think that I'm entitled to a life? How dare you think this is too soon? You know, I'm, I need to pick myself up too. This happened to me, not you. And my brother said to me, you know, I think she's just scared. She's not angry at you. She's just really scared of losing you. And I said, she'll never lose me. And he said, but she doesn't know that right now. Everything is changing and it's scary to her. And once I saw it that way, I was able to approach her much more gently. And then again, I think it was just time. You know, I think that over time she realized that for my kids, they understood they they really do come first. With them, I'm with them wholly. And I have made missteps. There have been many times, you know, I remember once my daughter was leaving for a big trip and I went to stay over for the night with somebody I was dating and had been dating for a while. And she was so angry at me because she, she was nervous about leaving and I hadn't realized she was nervous and I had left her alone. And she was really upset with me and I apologized. And then I, I tried going forward to be more careful about asking if it was okay, if she was okay or what she needed. So I think there's been a lot of bumps along the way. I still really believe like for myself, I very much separate people I'm dating from my children. So even though I've been dating somebody for a few years and he knows my kids, I don't have them all together so much because I always want my kids to feel that when I'm with them, I'm completely with them and they don't have to share me. And I think that's made a big difference. It's, you know, I guess I'm lucky I found somebody who's so patient with me and who's willing to have that kind of relationship where he might not see me for a couple of weeks if I'm with my children. So Tell me about the dating. You, we say in England, you get back on the horse, but you, you um, it, it's important for you to to feel desired again and to get back out there. And it all sounds very fun and fairly easy until it isn't and it doesn't. And you, and you sometimes end up in situations where you're not comfortable. How, how, when you look back on that now with, with a few years perspective, how do you feel about that period of time? I feel like I was just almost like on a treadmill, you know, like getting on the horse. It was like getting on the treadmill for me. Like it was like a sexual treadmill, I guess. I, I don't know what to say. <laughs> they could sell those really yeah. well globally. <laughs> yes, maybe that's what I should start inventing now. <laughs> sex treadmill. I just wanted to have sex all the time with as many people as I could. And I remember somebody saying to me that they didn't think that sex was a great tool for grieving. And I thought, well, I don't know what you mean. It's great for me. It's really working for me. <laughs> you got to try my treadmill. <laughs> <laughs> you just haven't been on the right treadmill. Um, set it faster, make it go faster. No, I, I think that I didn't, I was sort of numb, but there were two things happening at the same time, which is um, interesting to me in hindsight, which was that I was so deeply grieving and I was also so much revitalizing myself at the same time. So I think the sex for me was a tool to just get really comfortable with myself again and to learn that I had merit on my own, not just as being attached to somebody. I think when you're with somebody, when you're dating someone, even for a short time, I think, you know, even if it's a year, you become so tethered to that person and you don't realize how much of yourself, not that you've given it up. Um, or that you're sacrificing something. But in forming a partnership, it's going to be that some of you, some of who you were before that partnership is changed or suppressed. It's inevitable. And so after 27 years with a person, I don't even think that I understood that I could stand on my own or that people would see me. I talk a lot about how invisible I felt 
at the time. I felt that I was not even noticeable, that if I was with my children, I was their mom. If I was with my husband, I was his wife. But otherwise, I didn't really exist outside of that. So for me, I think having so many dating and sexual experiences sort of gave me back to myself. I really was like reclaiming this power of here I am. I can do this. I can make these decisions. I was very lucky because I really wasn't using great judgment all the time. And so I had one very bad experience that stopped me and made me sort of rethink what I'd been doing and how a little careless I was being, really. I mean, I was careful in in terms of like safe sex, but I wasn't careful in the sense of really screening people to make sure they were okay before I went back home with them. So I learned you know, even from from the very painful episode I had where I, I had sex with a man who I really didn't want to, but I was intimidated by and a little unsure of how to get myself out of a situation that was uncomfortable. And so I had sex with him and it was such a bad feeling. I'd never been in that situation before, you know, of just feeling like, well, I guess I let him on and now he can just, he's going to just sleep with me. Like I have no, I can't say no. And the truth is I didn't even try to say no because I was so intimidated by him and by the situation. I was so worried that I was doing things that were wrong. That was more important to me than my personal safety. So in hindsight, I would have been a little smarter. I would have taken more time maybe, but I understand what I was going through. I mean, I I give myself, it's funny, as hard as I am on myself, I'm very compassionate toward who I was in that year after my marriage ended. It was so devastating. And I, I did what I had to to survive, you know, and to eventually thrive. So even though I'm upset with myself that I sometimes put myself in situations that weren't uh, advisable or safe or that I would kill my kids if they did, I understand why I did it. And I, I'm not too angry at myself over it. No, it's so important yeah, to be compassionate to your former self. And, and you mentioned feeling invisible. Tell me about that feeling as though you disappeared and how therapy was helpful in that place. I think when you are, your expectations are one, one life that you're going to have. I was part of a whole, I was part of a collective. I was part of a family. I was part of a team. I was part of a whole ecosystem of friends and family that existed because I was married to my husband. And so when that was gone, I just felt like, why would anybody notice me? I felt so small. First of all, I've I've always been a little soft-spoken. So, and I remember when I was married, like my husband would yell at me, like, you have to speak up. People can't hear you. And he would get really frustrated. And I would sometimes say to him, well, actually you just, you just talk over me. Like, even when I try to talk, you just talk over me because your voice is so much louder. And so it had been this sort of recurring theme, this idea of having a voice and making yourself heard. So I did feel really invisible. I felt like, why would anybody notice me? I'm middle-aged, had three kids, they just see me as a mom. I'm like the PTA mom. I've got nothing to show for myself, but the investments I've put into my family. And so I think that was part of also, you know, when you have sex with somebody, you are one-on-one. That person is seeing you, touching you. It's tangible. It's like tangible evidence that you are there. And that really gave me a lot of comfort and confidence, which is why I say that for me, sex was an effective grieving tool because it made me feel connected to myself and to other people and to see that I could have connections. I was not invisible. I wasn't silent. I could have a voice as well as have a a physical presence. 
Thank you so much for explaining it so eloquently. The sex treadmill we all need. (laughs) And I'm so sorry that you were talked over. That makes me really sad. It makes Um, me sad too, actually, in hindsight, because I was always a really quiet child also. And I always think about my parents yelling at me. They, They would always say like, little Laura, you know, you have to make your voice heard. And, um... I mean, now I'm quite loud. I'm quite vocal. So I guess I've shown them, huh? <laughs> well, I wondered. So you talk about, well, I'm skipping ahead a little and I want to go back and talk about the difference in terms of what you look for in a relationship uh, at this stage of life once you've had children. But you talk about your desire to to get your voice out there, to get your book published. And you ask your your husband and you, you talk to him about it and he he gives you his blessing. But I wonder how does he feel now it's actually out there in the world? And how do your kids feel about reading about these experiences now? I think my husband feels less good than he thought he would. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, never mind. (laughs) That is the most diplomatic way I can say it. Oh, Laura, blimey. (laughs) No, no, I'm, I mean, it's fine for me to talk about. I'm only laughing because I think it's like anything that you think it's going to be one thing, but the reality reality of a situation is different. That's just the way it goes. So I think that when I started doing it, he felt like this is a great project for you in part because I even asked him, I said, you know, how does it feel to know that like when we were together, we had this like kind of boring sex life. And now I'm having, you know, these like incredible sexual experiences and I'm writing about it. Like, what does that feel like for you? And he said, I'm, I'm actually happy for you. I'm happy that you're happy. And also mostly I feel relieved that I didn't destroy you. You know, I, what I did to you was such a betrayal that maybe you would have been ruined forever, but here you are, you know, living your best life. And so I don't have to live with the guilt that I ruined you. So I thought, okay, interesting perspective. This was still before the book came out. Mm -hmm. Um, The book came out. I gave it to him. I know he read at least half of it. He, He remarked on that. And I think that it was really uncomfortable for him. I don't think that he enjoyed people knowing so closely, you know, what he had done. And I thought I was very generous with him. I don't think that I, you know, shared every terrible detail of of the affair and of how I found out about it and of how it affected my kids. I felt that I really tried hard to protect everybody involved to the degree that I could while still being honest. So that's too bad. I, I wanted him to feel okay about it. I want him to feel good about it even. And I don't, I don't think it feels very good. And there's nothing, you know, I don't regret it. I I feel like this, the the book gave me so much strength and reassurance that I was my own person. So my kids are more, their trajectory is a little more um, interesting because they started out the opposite of him, like as accepting as open as he was, they were so negative (laughs) how mortifying for your mother to write a book about her sex life. And I had always been the like sort of model mom in their minds, like the mom, you know, their friends would come over and I'd cook everybody dinner and make brownies and everybody would sit and talk to me. And my house was really clean and I, you know, ran events and fairs and dressed up for Halloween. So it was really embarrassing. Like, they do not, did not want to know about my sex life and they did not want their friends to know about it. And they didn't think that I should be like, screaming it from the rooftops. Those were very hard conversations. Eventually, my son and my youngest daughter, they sort of stopped caring. I think after a while, they were like, all right, you know what? It's, you do, do your thing, mom. You, you know, you're, you, you just do your thing. We're, we're proud of you no matter what. And my oldest daughter, it was harder for her, I think, because she identifies so strongly with me. 
and we're so close. Uh, and she's older, so she she knows more, you know, she understands more. But even she came around, you know, she when she first saw the book, the book actually, you know, it has that big juicy peach on the cover, which is very sexual. And originally it was an eggplant. And she said, <laughs> if you publish this book, I will deny that you're even my mother. Like, I will be, I'm, this is so embarrassing. A cat, how, the fact that you're writing a book and there's a giant eggplant on the cover is just so gross. So I said to my publisher, I, I'm sorry, I can't have this cover. Uh, my daughter's going to disown me. I, I, need, I need something else. And then I got very lucky because it turned out there was a book that was also called Available that had an eggplant on the cover. So they were forced to change it. <laughs> It wasn't How even fortunate. It was so lucky. It was like the luckiest day of my life. And then they sent me the peach and my daughter was like, okay, this is a little better than the eggplant, but still, come on, like ha- have some dignity. But, you know, I said to her like this, this is just how it's going to be. And even though it hurts you that I'm doing this, I'm going to do it anyway, um, because it's important to me. And I don't think you want to be the reason I don't do it. And she's come around. It's so funny. Yesterday, actually, I went to see her in college. I just ran up over to, to have lunch with her because I was in the neighborhood of where her college is. And we were talking about something. And I said, have you ever had a threesome? And she goes, oh my God, mom, please. And I said, no, I'm just curious. I just am curious. You were talking about threesomes and other people. I'm just curious to know if you ever have. And you can ask me. And she goes, I'm not asking you. And I don't, I don't, this is a very early on a Sunday morning to start talking about this. I just had a flashback to the story you tell of the the guy you're seeing who'd just been at a sex party and Ugh. the thin membrane. I just, oh. oh. Anyway, everyone will have to read the book to, to know more about that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's a teaser. I wonder, you reflect on your relationships and all of them up until your divorce had been goal-orientated. And I found that so interesting and something I imagine so many people can relate to, that the idea, the motivation of looking for a partner, craving a family, and it impacts on our views about what a relationship should should be in terms of monogamy, in terms of how we divide our time. I wonder if you could talk a little more about how it feels to be looking for perhaps a relationship, perhaps not, when you're no longer at that stage where you're trying to mate and and couple and, and make children with someone. Yeah, that's so interesting, the whole issue of um, monogamy and settling down and starting a family, because I was all about getting the man, securing him. And I thought I had done a really great job because I met him in college. I didn't, I never was single. You know, I never moved uh, back home or uh, moved into an apartment by myself or lived with girlfriends and dated. He and I moved in together as soon as we graduated from college and we were together ever since. And I thought it was enviable, you know, that I had like really done my job well because I had gotten the man and that meant I could get the children. It was, you know, it was a very clear path to me. Now, what I what I tell my children is very different. You know, I, I suggest they slow down. I was just so young and I didn't know really anything except that I wanted a family that was stable and I wanted children as soon as possible. And nothing else really mattered to me so much. I think kids are so much smarter now and so much more open in terms of their sexuality, in terms of lifestyles and, and, you know, in in taking their time to do things that they want to do. But after my marriage ended, I really didn't know what I would want again. I, I couldn't imagine that I would ever want to get remarried. It just seemed impossible to me that I could ever be in a position again in which I might have to get divorced, frankly. I mean, it sounds so jaded, but the truth is that I kept thinking, 
Well, I was in this marriage for a really long time and I thought I'd be in it forever. But when I looked at the things about the long-term marriage that is so annoying, which, you know, everybody could say like the things, like if your husband snores or sips his coffee too loudly or your wife, you know, chews an apple like a horse, like these were all things that had come up in my house. It's so annoying. And so I thought I could just never have to live with those things again. I could be freed from that. I could sleep in my own bed. I could have 18 blankets on if I want. I could I could make this work on my own. I never have to be tethered to another person who has gets to decide things for me that are really big. So I also realized that I still really wanted the time with my kids to just be with my kids. I wasn't looking to create a new family. I was trying to sort of parse out the family that we had, but not to really make it more complicated by adding on to it. So when I started dating again, I was really very clear with every man I dated that I didn't want to be monogamous. I wanted to feel that I was free to do whatever I wanted to do when I wanted to do it, that I'd lived in a very confined relationship for many, many years, and it wasn't what I wanted anymore. And because I wasn't looking for a father for my children, I wasn't looking for somebody to financially support me. I didn't need all the things that are that come with marriage. You know, the things that I always looked to marriage as the ideal, the ultimate, the reason why you'd want to get married, financial security, a family, you know, someone to take care of you when you're sick, all of these and love. I mean, love and partnership. But what I discovered is you can have love and partnership and not be married. You can have love and partnership and not be monogamous. And so that's really how I approached it. And so I, I it did so happen that I started dating somebody who you know, he was newly divorced also. And we were both really amateurish about dating. We had like no idea how it really worked or how things went, but somehow we muddled through and we're still together. And I love being with him. And he is so patient because he understands that, you know, I'll drop everything if a kid needs me or if my, like my ex-husband was just away for two weeks. So I had my daughter for the two week period. And that meant I was not going to see him. And he's very patient about just relinquishing me to my life. And he also understands that I'm not done having adventures. I'm not done being seen. And so I maintain my freedom to sleep with other people if I want to. I mean, frankly, I haven't. It's been COVID. And so having somebody has been really nice, you know, because we're all living in still such a lockdown state. But I don't, I don't want to say never, I don't want to say never, but I, I don't think I'll get married again. I don't think it's an institution that I feel I need to be a part of again. I, I was so interested. You you said it, you think it is possible to have it all, but only if you're flexible about what that actually means. Do you still feel that? It sounds as though you're living it. You know, it's interesting. When I wrote the book, I wasn't yet divorced. I was we'd been separated um, and living completely separately, and knowing that we weren't going to get back together. But in many ways, we were still sort of married-ish. Like you know, we were we still shared a car, we shared um, a house in the country. He would just sort of put money in my account and, um, you know, I would go to him for big expenses for things for the kids. And now that the divorce is official, it's meant a lot of really big changes, you know, to my home. Like I, we sold our apartment. The house in the country is now his. You know, the car got returned to the dealer. Uh, he's got more time now with our youngest daughter. He has her more of the time. I'm not, not more than I do, but more than he used to. And um, I have a fixed salary and it will go away, you know, eventually. Um, and it will die down after the kids grow up. So actually I feel 
I, I did buy an apartment and it's not ready yet. So I'm not living in it. So I've, I've been without a home for about six months, um, staying at my mother's apartment with my youngest daughter. So I've been without a home. Um, I need to get a job, you know, that pays me a regular salary. There are ways in which the reality of life that he really sheltered me from because he was the financial provider. And the reality of that is, um, is very apparent to me now in a different way. And that's scary. And that's more loss, you know, losing the house, losing my garden. Like those are losses for me that I'm mourning all over again. But I do think you can have it all. I, I just don't think that you have to have it the way that you had it the first time. You know, I'm always mm. interested by people who leave long or any marriage really and enter another marriage. Because to me, it's like I now see that there's lots of different ways to live. And that, for example, the man I'm dating, he has his own apartment. I have my apartment. I like my own space. I want to retreat. I want, I want to really explore what it means to be a woman at 51 years old who is single and who could do anything. And I don't know what that means yet. But if I attach myself to him too soon, you know, in a, in a home, in a marriage then I think I'll just lose something of myself again. I think it's very hard to fully maintain yourself in a marriage. I think that's great maybe when you're younger and having children and forming a family. But now that I've gotten through the worst part of you know separation and, and of having to grow, I don't wanna go back to it. I want something else. Do you think in any world you would have chosen this for what your life looks like now? No. No, I wouldn't have. I just, you know, I struggle with it so much because, well, so, okay. One of the things that I'm really dealing with now, I think finally is when we talk about when you, I love the name of your podcast and your book, How to Be Sad, because I think that we really don't know how to be sad. And I think that my not knowing how to be sad meant being stoic or, you know, holding back or compartmentalizing. And so I'm really in a place now where I'm, I've, like ripped open the guts and I'm addressing it all. You know, I'm really dealing with the loss that I had when I was a child. I'm dealing with the tumultuous childhood that I had growing up. And these are things I never dealt with my entire life. You know, I thought if I was safe with my husband, like I was in a safe marriage and I created my own family, that all of the hardship and sadness and pain of my earlier life would just be erased. And Unfortunately, when one thing ends, sometimes it opens everything again, right? Like you rip open the old wounds. And so I am learning how to be sad and it's uncomfortable. It, it's hard. I also know it's powerful and that it is valuable and that I wouldn't have it any other way. But there are times where I think my life was so simple before. It was so easy and so simple. And wouldn't it be nice to still be back in that life? But the truth is, like, when I think about it, I mean, I wasn't really that, I wasn't that happy. I was just fine all the time. I was serving other people. I was, you know, I was safe. I thought I was safe. I thought I was very secure. So I think my mental state is still trying to catch up with the truth of the situation, which is I really am better off now. But giving up that notion of family, giving up, you know, the, the stability, that's just hard. Like that, that takes, I think that's going to take me some time. I think eventually I'll be able to say I wouldn't have it any other way. I do be, I believe that. I think that's why the, the journey feels really worthwhile for me because I feel like I'm getting there. 
But you know, one of the things also I just in midlife, like in the past three, in the past month, I've attended three funerals for um, very close friends of mine, two of whom their father died and one was uh, her mother. And all of them had marriages that lasted like 55 years. And all of the funerals I noted, everybody talked about how family was most important to these people, but that at the end of the day, whatever their careers were and successes and hobbies, it was about their love for their spouse and their family. And it is sad to me that I will not get that. You know, I will not get that with my husband. I will not get 55 years and, you know, an adoring man at my bedside or at his bedside. And I'm letting go of that. I'm learning to accept it. In the book, you talk about, I think you're explaining to your daughter that even though your your family now looks different, you are still a family. I wonder hearing you speak as you are now, have you, has your thoughts changed on that a little? Well, I think we are still a family. I mean, look, he's, you might, my husband and I are always going to be very connected to each other because of the years that we spent, the formative years we spent together. And nobody he meets today, you know, that he'll, he'll ever be with is going to know his parents the way that I knew his parents. And they're gone now. So, you know, there's a special connection that you have to somebody when you've been part of each other's family. And it's not so easy to sever that. So I do think that we'll always be connected to each other very, very deeply. And we do still celebrate holidays together and birthdays. You know, he he comes to our house or, you know, we find ways to be together. So I do believe that. But I think that psychologically to accept the divorce, um, to really accept that this is final, the, the permanence of it, I've had a little bit to say, okay, he's not my like emergency contact anymore. He's not my number one anymore. And in that sense, even the other day I said to my daughter, it's so amazing. We made it through COVID. None of us got COVID. And I mean, when I say I made it through, sorry, it's not like it's over, but so far I said, it's kind of amazing. Nobody in our family got COVID. And she said, what are you talking about? Dad just had it. And I said, well, yeah, but I meant the rest of us. That's interesting, a sort of cognitive step then you have taken to towards that that acceptance, as you say. That's interesting. I think that's a good way of saying it. I think that's what it is because we were so entwined still. For four years, we've been so entwined. And I even would say sometimes, he's my husband-ish. You know, we would still do these things for each other and serve in the, in the way that we had always known how to serve each other. Um, even while not being married to each other. And I think that for me to really move forward, I have to let it go. I just have to. That's a really hard thing. That's a really hard thing. I wonder what do you do, and you talk about the work that you were doing, kind of unpacking the sadness of of your divorce, but also of your childhood and of losses. What do you do when you are feeling low now? What what helps you not to not feel sad, but to to feel sad in a, in a sort of positive, productive healthy way? I think for the first time ever in my life, I'm leaning into the sadness. And it's, again, it's uncomfortable, but I know it's not going to last forever. I know that this is temporary. And, and I, I, so I really just, honestly, I I think I think a lot. I think I spent a lot of time thinking. Um, I spent a lot of time writing. I spent a lot of time thinking about what I want to write. That really helps me a lot. Being able to put words on a, a page to articulate my feelings and to understand why I'm feeling those feelings, that really helps me, being able to understand why 
And just being able to say these words, like I, when I talk to friends, sometimes I'll say, I'm so angry. I'm so mad. Like now that the, the divorce is final, I'm so mad that I'm in this position, but I have to accept it because otherwise I'm going to be miserable because, you know, being angry is just not a natural state for me. And so I'm sort of just, I think in learning how to be sad, I'm learning just how to sit with it. And so I've been doing a lot less than I usually do. Usually I'm running around frantically, you know, picking people up, dropping them off, doing errands, making food, cleaning up, you know, doing all the things that I do. And now I, I just am having some quiet time. And even on the weekends when my daughter's with her dad um, and I'm with the man I'm dating, I've been saying to him, I just don't really want to run around this weekend and do a lot of things. I just need some like quiet time and space. And so I'm letting myself feel sad. I hope that, <laughs> I hope that ends at some point. <laughs> but um, I can't say I want to feel this way forever. But given that I've never let myself feel this, I'm open to it. You know, I think you just that that saying like the, the only way out is through. I love that saying so much. And I think that I'm really in it now, you know, and I'm I'm really going through it. And I think this is the only way. And that's hard. But I now see that there's no easy out. You know, I think all my life I believed there was an easy out. Like, just don't be sad and you'll be fine. Just don't think about it. Put on happy music. Put on a happy face. Find the silver lining and you'll be fine. And I finally understand you can't just put it away. It will always catch up with you. So in some ways, actually, it's kind of a relief to be sad. It's, there's sort of a relief in just saying, I feel sad. This is where I am. It won't last forever, but it's going to last as long as it lasts. And I'm in it. That kind of surrender. Yeah, absolutely. And finally, I could talk to you for hours, but I always end by asking, knowing all you know now, what advice would you give to your 21-year-old self about how to be sad well? And I think for you in, in particular, I'm fascinated by your answer because you were you were with your husband from, from the age of 19. So yeah, you were, you were in that relationship at that time. So yeah, age 21, Laura, how would you guide yourself in terms of what sadness is going to look like? I think I would just tell myself not to be afraid of it, that it is just a natural part of life, as is joy, as is love. There will be loss. There will be sadness. It all comes as one great big package. And don't be afraid of it. I remember the first time I was really depressed I was when I went away to college. I was 18 years old. I missed my mother so much. I was terribly homesick. And I really wanted to go back home. I cried constantly. I cried from morning until night. I cried through classes. I skipped a lot of classes because I couldn't go to them. I could hardly get out of bed. This never happened to me before. This was like completely, I was completely blindsided by this. And I had very good friends. In fact, I went to college with one of my closest friends and she was so alarmed for me. And I remember my mother saying, oh my God, I never should have let you go on a new, I was on a birth control pill. I never should have let you go on that pill because it's your hormones. Now your hormones are, you know, act like you're, it, it's hormonal and it's so out of your control. And I feel awful because how could I have let you go on this medicine? Years later, the same thing happened to me when I was trying to get pregnant for the first time and I struggled with infertility. And so I was on hormones and I became really depressed again. And my mother did the same thing. It's the hormones, it's the hormones. And so all these years really of my life, I've been thinking that anytime I feel deeply, it is because of something out of my control, like hormones. 
that it's not because I'm sad. It, it is not acceptable to be sad. Like in my home, I guess it really just wasn't acceptable. There had to be a reason for it. And so I wish that I could go back to my younger self and say, you are sad because you've endured sad things and there is pain that you haven't healed from yet. And maybe you need to be sad for a while. Don't try to take something that makes it go away. I'm all for medicine. I'm not saying that there's not a place for it. I'm all for therapy I'm for all of it. But just call it what it is. It's depression. It's not hormones. It's, it may be it's hormones too, but it's also depression. And that's okay. It's okay to be depressed. It's okay to cry from morning until night. You will be okay. Have compassion for yourself. Don't be ashamed and give it the name that gives you some relief because it's a real thing. And so that, that is really what I wish that I had done was not always just looked forward with these sort of blinders on, but just slowed down to accept where I was. We actually wasn't even until I remember, I don't know, maybe five years ago, my daughter said to me, mom, can you do me a favor and like stop finding the silver linings? It's so annoying. Every time I'm sad, you're like, silver lining is, you know, whatever. And she goes, I just want to feel sad. Can you just validate that I feel upset without trying to fix it? And I was shocked. I thought, why wouldn't you want to fix it if you could? I'm I'm offering you a way out. But I, you know, I really respect her and she's quite fierce. And so I listened to her and then I thought, oh my God, that is so true. I never can just say, I'm really sorry you feel sad period. I'm always looking she for the way wise. out. She's so wise. It's like terrifying. Wow. This 22-year-old girl is so <laughs> wise. It's like you you can't look away from her. She's so intense and she's going to get her master's to be a social worker and she'll do many people much good in the world. But I, I think that is really, if I could tell my younger self anything, it would be to just say, this is natural. It's natural to feel this way. Like the world can be a really hard place. And it is okay if sometimes you feel a little beaten down by it. It doesn't mean you're beaten down or damaged. It just means you feel sad and you'll get over it. Just give yourself time. That's a wonderful place to end. Thank you so much. A pleasure to speak to you today, Laura. Thank you so much, Helen. Thank you so much for listening. Laura has some wise ideas on loss and love and sex treadmills. So have a look at her book. Available is out now and How To Be Sad, the paperback is also out wherever you get your books. If you enjoy the show, I would really, really appreciate it if you could leave it five stars, leave it a review, tell your friends. It helps us book more great guests. That's all from me. I will see you next week and I hope you're doing okay today.